I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, we talk with a scholar who blames 120,000 U.S. deaths each year on terrible workplaces. Which, by the way, I believe to be a low estimate, even though that would make it the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. Then the business of making lives better. You really have to address an ecosystem of the major factors to allow families or women or men to lift themselves from poverty. You can't do it with any one single attack. Plus, what's the cost of not having access to the internet? So there's a lot of loss associated with not having the amount of broadband in your home that you really need to be participating successfully today. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In 1984, a labor reporter named Robert Levering and an editor named Milton Moskowitz wrote a book that made a big splash. But the splash may not have been quite big enough. The book was called The 100 Best Companies to Work For in America, and it became a bestseller. And they found then that the companies on the Great Place to Work list outperformed uh, the companies that weren't on that list. Jeffrey Pfeffer is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business, and he says study after study has shown that good workplaces are better for workers and better for companies' bottom lines. And it is nonetheless the case that companies haven't emulated uh, those practices. So we've known about this stuff for 30 or 40 years. We've known the health effects of workplace stress for decades, and we haven't done anything. Pfeffer says the costs of not doing anything are tremendous. He's the author of a new book called Dying for a Paycheck, which argues that the academic literature proves something that few people are talking about. Our jobs are a major health risk, resulting in, for a number of reasons, 120,000 deaths a year in America. Which, by the way, I believe to be a low estimate, even though that would make it the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. Much of the anxiety that surrounds jobs has to do with a lack of control, not knowing what your hours will be, worrying that you'll get laid off, being micromanaged. Pioneering work on this lack of control was done by a scholar named Sir Michael Marmot, who appeared on this show a couple of years ago. Marmot has shown that those with power at work tend to do a lot better than those without it. We calculated in England, and the figures would be similar in the U.S., if not more dramatic, that if you're in the middle, you have eight fewer years of healthy life than if you were at the top. And eight fewer years of healthy life means earlier onset of decline in grip strength, earlier onset of difficulty walking, earlier onset of decline in mental function. Jeffrey Pfeffer, the professor at Stanford Business School, says there are lots of models of successful companies to emulate. He points to healthcare companies like DaVita, which provides kidney dialysis, and Southwest Airlines, and SAS, which is a software company. And then there's Patagonia, a clothing manufacturer that Pfeffer says shows their employees they care about them. They have organized their work so that 26 times a year you get a three-day weekend. Uh, They have organized their work so that if the surf's up, you can take off and go. Um, Because the theory is that I've given you, I've hired good people. 
You're an intelligent person. You will get your work done. If the surf's up and you go to surfing, you'll work some other time when the surf's not up. It's going to be okay. But it's not all surfing and long weekends. So one of the things when I interviewed their head of HR, he said, we measure the percentage of working age women who return to Patagonia after giving birth. And they do all kinds of things um, to make that easy for them. And in Patagonia's case, 99% of the women who are working for them, who when they get pregnant and have a kid, return to Patagonia after delivery. And that is something that they hold themselves accountable for. Instead, what most American workers have, Pfeffer argues, is economic insecurity, a workplace that does not help with the task of balancing work and family, a sense that they're not being treated fairly, and a lack of autonomy. I could tell you that the epidemiological evidence on the effects of these factors plus some others on people's health and their mortality is significant, is profound, has been documented over, you know, decades. Uh, so there's an enormous epidemiological literature on the effects of work practices on people's health. Right. And one of the ways in which work practices affect people's health is directly. But the other way in which work practices affect people's health is through their effect on individual behaviors. So people who are stressed are more likely to smoke more. There's evidence mm -hmm. for that. They're more likely to drink more. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to overeat. They're more likely, as an article from a, in the New York Times by a psychiatrist said, we call it comfort food for a reason. They are more likely uh, to engage in illicit drug taking. They are less likely to exercise. So stress affects not only people's health directly, but through its effect on their individual health-relevant behaviors. What if a manager said to you, look, I understand what you're saying, but it's very important that I am on top of all the time what the people under me are doing, because what if they aren't like, what if they're not doing their work? Like, I, I need to be on top of things all the time. And like, you know, when you talk about work family balance, it's great to have work family balance. But my job as a manager is to make sure this company is productive. You know, I can't worry too much about people's families. Well, what I would say is two things. Number one, number I actually say three things. Number okay. one, it is it is not surprising to find that people who are stressed are more likely to quit. So stress leads to turnover. Turnover is expensive. Mm -hmm. Number two, it is not surprising, but of course, academic research demonstrates this thing, even though it's not surprising. It is not surprising to know that people who come to work sick don't do as well mm -hmm. uh, on the job. Their productivity and their performance suffers. And number three, contrary to what managers may think, there is evidence at the national level, in a nice chart in The Economist magazine. There's evidence at the industry level, which I cite in Dying for a Paycheck. There's evidence at the company level that suggests that long work hours is negatively related to productivity beyond a certain point, yeah. and that we have known for 40 or 50 years through a variety of research studies that job autonomy, giving people more control and more say, and not micromanaging them, leads to higher levels of engagement and higher levels of motivation and productivity. I think it's horrible to look at the Gallup data and find that worldwide only 15%, that's one five percent of people are engaged at their work with the rest of the people being either disengaged or actively disengaged, which Gallup defines as basically trying to sabotage their employer. Hmm. You argue that things have gotten worse in the last 
two or three decades. What is pushing things to get worse and sort of the effects on people's health to be worse? I think there's several things that have caused things to get worse. Number one, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago in the 1950s in particular, CEOs saw their job as one of managing a set of relationships among stakeholders. There were customers, there were employees, there were shareholders, there was the community. And now it is all about the shareholders. So stakeholder Mm. capitalism has been replaced by shareholder capitalism. Mm. Number two, Job tenure, as my colleague at Wharton, Peter Capelli, has shown, as among other people, job tenure has gone down. We have more people working under contract arrangements. There's a study that came out recently that shows that basically 94% of the job growth between 2005 and 2015 is with impermanent contract labor in the United States. So to the extent that I'm dealing with people that I don't see and that I don't know, I'm not going to feel as responsible for their well-being. And then there's the gig economy and the development of all of this software that permits me to monitor you and schedule you, which makes you feel in a much more precarious position. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about white-collar jobs versus blue-collar jobs. Uh, I mean, classically, I think people would think blue-collar jobs are worse for your health because the labor tends to be more physical. Maybe you're working in construction, you're working on a factory line. I mean, things could literally... You know, it's much more likely that an accident would happen to you, you'd fall, something would land on you, and that would be the the health risk of that job. But give me an overall sense, what is the health risk of a blue-collar job right now in America versus a white-collar job? Well, ironically, the health risks that you just described of, you know, accidents or uh, chemical spills, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration um, has largely taken care of those. And so the death toll and the illness toll from those have gone way, way down. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which I've talked to, understands very, very well the psychosocial risks, for instance, of workplace stress, as does the UK counterpart of OSHA, which would be the health and safety executive. Mm -hmm. And they just had a report out recently on the tremendous number of workdays lost to workplace stress. Mm -hmm. So while OSHA and HSE have understood the the consequences of workplace stress for various reasons, including governments and politics and funding, they have not been able to intervene. So at the moment, I see lots of pain, even in the Silicon Valley, Hmm. people working exceptionally long hours. One of the things I talk about in Dying for a Paycheck is the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, which sends out a mobile van to call on Highly paid engineers who, by the way, have health insurance as well as a lot of income, who believe that they are too busy to go in and see their doctor. And the wonderful quote from the head of the this PAMF program says, I've seen 30-year-old engineers with 50-year-old bodies. Hmm. And by the way, once you have a 50-year-old body as a 30-year-old, it's going to be tough to get the 30-year-old version of yourself back. <laughs> I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Jeffrey Pfeffer, author of Dying for a Paycheck. He's also a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Um, So you write about the CEO of the insurance company, Aetna, and how Aetna changed its approach towards the health of its workers. Talk about that and talk about why, what prompted them to do that. Well, the CEO of Aetna had two, I think, life-changing experiences. Uh, One was he had an extremely severe 
a skiing accident, which left him in kind of chronic pain in one of his arms. Um, and they, they didn't even re ever regain full use of that arm. And number two, his son um, had an incidence of uh, some relatively rare but important childhood cancer. And I think this brought home to him the fact that uh, that health risks and health care issues could, uh, could affect almost anybody. And so uh, Mark Bertolini is his name, did a bunch of things. He, number one, raised the salary of everybody at Aetna who was making less than $15 or $16 an hour to that $15 or $16 an hour level, uh, which, and we know that salary is related to health because income is related to health. And so that was number one. Number two, he put in a bunch of other kinds of supplementary things, uh, such as yoga and stress reduction classes. And number three, he made sure that the, that the people who work for Aetna were, were getting access to good health care and tried to improve the organization's culture with respect to health. So all of those things came out of a personal, personally transformative experiences that caused him uh, to change Aetna's approach to its workforce. Mm -hmm. And with all due respect, I think this is a fabulous story. It's wonderful. But when I hear this story and similar stories like Bob Chapman and Barry Waymiller, who one day saw the light and decided to change his organization's culture, I think this is fabulous. But I do not think people's health should depend upon the whim or wisdom of their CEO. Mm -hmm. I think people have a right to have a job that does not kill them. So why haven't other companies looked at Patagonia or SAS or, you know, Southwest, you talked about never laying anybody off, and looked at that and said, well, gee, Southwest is doing pretty well and Patagonia is doing well and they're selling a bunch of jackets and sweatshirts and everything. So if that worked for them, we could do that too. We could treat people really well. We could make it so that they didn't leave and there was less turnover. And like you said, turnover is expensive. So why aren't other companies doing that? You would have to ask the CEOs of those other companies. <laughs> well, what do you think? It, make, it, it makes no sense to me. I really and truly don't know. When I sit in meetings and hear heads of HR obsess about their health care costs, because many large employers in the United States, most large employers in the United States are self-insured, which means they are responsible for their own health care costs. I don't understand why they're not addressing the workplace, which is where a lot of the cause of these high health care costs come. You know, uh, one of the quotes in the book is from Bob Chapman. And he says, you know, he, he stood, he says, I've stood in front of a thousand CEOs and said, you are the cause of the health care crisis. Three quarters of the disease burden in the United States, and by the way, in the world, according to the World Economic Forum, comes from chronic disease. Chronic disease comes not exclusively, but importantly, from stress. Stress comes from work. So if we want to fix healthcare costs, let alone uh, people's well-being, and, and, and as Michael Marmot said nicely, how many years of good, productive, useful, healthy life they have, we need to look at the workplace. And why we're not doing that, I have no idea. But that's one of the reasons why I wrote Dying for a Paycheck. I am trying to wake people up to the seriousness of this problem, to the pervasiveness of this problem, and to the fact that the problem can, in fact, be fixed. Do you see governments either here in, in states, uh, federal, um, or any other place in the world, um, paying attention to the data that you've looked at, looking at sort of the healthcare harms from workplaces, and saying, "Whoa, you know, healthcare is a huge burden for this state, country, uh, you know, whatever it is," and, and we should pay some attention here. 
Um, I think the United Kingdom has begun to pay attention to this. There was a commission, actually, Sir Michael Marmot was on that commission called the Atkinson Commission. Uh, but, you know, this is a political thing that's fraught with, you know, beliefs about whose responsibility it is to take care of employees and how much deregulation or regulation we're going to have of business. But to me, this is analogous to the environmental movement 40 or 50 years ago with respect to the physical environment. 40, 50 years ago, I had companies say, we can't afford to not pollute the air and the water and the ground because we would be uncompetitive. We can't compete with China or whatever. Mm-hmm. We can't afford to do this. This is a, this is costly. And we decided this was no longer tolerable. Sooner or later, we may decide uh, that uh, social pollution or human pollution is no longer tolerable either. But uh, in the meantime, we'll see. So th- there are governments. By the way, the New Zealand government said famously when they were confronted with these data, well, you know, this is work and it, th- th- there's nothing we can do about about it. Well, so time will tell. I'm hoping that people, government people, employers, and employees will wake up uh, to the seriousness of this issue. Because one of the questions that I'm often asked is what surprised me about all of this? It's worse than I thought. If you feel like you're in a workplace that's really not all that good for your health, that's not making you feel all that good about yourself, what should you do? Quit. A, con- a nice, concise answer. Well, so, and, and when people say to me, so here's the analogy I would draw. First of all, you start with the premise, which we've also demonstrated in a published paper, that many of the workplace exposures are as harmful to people as secondhand smoke in terms of their effects on self-reported physical health, mental health, having a physician-diagnosed illness, and mortality. So I say to people, you know, it is a nice, concise answer. If you were in a room that was filling up with smoke, what would you do? Would you say, well, you know, there's not a better room to go to? Would you give yourself a bunch of rationalizations? Or would you get out of that room? Mm -hmm. And this is exactly the analogy. If you're in a place that is jeopardizing your health, both physical and mental, and the two, of course, are related, you need to exit the room. And you just say, if if you're dependent on that money, just... Try to figure out a way to get a different job. That you can. There are within every industry better and worse workplaces. You can look at the great place to work less, the best place for the for working mothers. All of these lists. They span. All of these companies span a variety of industries. There are retailers. There are manufacturers. There are software companies. There are consulting firms. There are even law firms. Yeah, even though law firms are not always the healthiest places to work. So. There are better and worse workplaces within every industry and within every occupation. There are places where the CEO cares about the well-being of the people whose lives have been entrusted to that individual, and there are CEOs who don't care. And you are much better off with the former than the latter. Jeffrey Pfeffer is the author of the new book, Dying for a Paycheck, How Modern Management Harms Employee Health and Company Performance and What We Can Do About It. He's also a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Jeffrey, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. A woman done left and took all the reason I was working for. We've 
got articles on the company culture at some of the places that Pfeffer praised, from Southwest Airlines to Patagonia to the software firm SAS. That's all at our website, innovationhub.org. Seventeen years ago, Connie Duckworth went on a business trip. She was 46 at the time, and her life was already somewhat unusual. She was one of the first women to become a partner at Goldman Sachs, and she had four young children. Duckworth lived in Chicago, but the business trip happened to be in New York. She was there on a beautiful Tuesday in late summer, September 11th, 2001. As it was for so many Americans, the experience of that day was traumatic for Duckworth and for her family, which was back in Chicago. And it changed the direction of her life. She retired from Goldman Sachs that year. She was still in her mid-40s. But in retirement, her life took another unexpected turn when she got invited on an unusual trip. It was 2003, and she flew to a place where things were tough, but hope was high, Afghanistan. It's somewhat like landing on the moon because the landscape is so dramatic and so stark and barren. For Duckworth, the contrast with the world she knew was hard to take. There was very little uh, infrastructure, no electric grid, and it was uh, just a pretty astonishing uh, experience. We were there in January, and uh, that is a mountainous area. It's cold. I'd say the temperatures were probably mid-20s, and there was no heat in any of the buildings we visited. But what she saw in one of those buildings would pull her back into the business world. The trigger really for me was our last stop on the way back to the airport to fly out. We pulled into a bombed out, ugly, Soviet-style building. And there were literally dozens of widows and children trying to shelter in this building for the winter. And I'm a mother of four children. They were quite young at that time. And to look at the faces of these beautiful children and see them wearing flip-flops when I had on my Thinsulate boots and my down raincoat uh, really struck me. And it compelled me to take some action to try to create jobs for women in Afghanistan. Duckworth was a driven person, but that goal of creating jobs for women so they could have more power to help their families, that was trickier than she'd imagined. And as she'll readily admit, she was kind of unrealistic about it. So my initial foray was to try to convince uh, some clothing manufacturers to start a small cut-and-sew factory in Kabul, Afghanistan. And uh, when talking to a couple of CEOs, I was asked questions like, well, gee, uh, do they have electricity? No. Uh, isn't there like a war going on there? Well, yes, there's still some instability, et cetera. And so then I came to learn uh, that even if we did set such a factory up, it was maybe not possible for the women to come and work there. So Connie Duckworth went back to the books. She tried to understand the economy of Afghanistan. And what she found was old data from the 1970s that pointed towards an interesting business opportunity. Rugs are the largest legal export commodity in Afghanistan. Hmm. And conveniently, they're produced largely by women and Hmm. often in their homes. So it's a home-based cottage industry uh, kind of endeavor. But you've also written that a lot of labor, certainly across the world, on rugs is child labor. Um, A lot of it is slave labor. 
So beyond the fact that this is a hard business to get into, if you're going to pay somebody good wages, how are those rugs going to compete with rugs that, you know, the people who are working on them aren't being paid sometimes anything to work on those rugs? Yes, it was really an eye-opener for me to learn that after trafficking, the rug industry globally is one of the most exploitive industries for women and children in the world. And so what we looked at was to say, gee, the woman sits at the end of a supply chain, and everybody in the middle, all the middlemen who touch the raw materials, who handle the finished rugs, who deliver the rugs, all of those people, typically men, Uh, take their piece of the action, leaving literally pennies on the dollar for the women who are actually doing labor. And so the first step we took was to figure out how to disintermediate those middlemen, hence leaving some of the economics to be pushed down to the actual women. So you decide to start this rug business, and you have this kind of social contract with with really the men who run the houses that the women who are working in the rug business, um, you, you strike up the social contract with the men. And, and the man who runs that house promises two things. One is that the kids who live in that house have to be allowed to go to school, and that's boys and girls, and girls generally didn't go to school. Um, and second, that women were allowed to go outside to uh, learn to read in classes, and that also when they were pregnant, they could go get health care. Did you get, initially, did you get a lot of um, kind of doors slammed in your face when you said this is the prerequisite for, you know, bringing a woman on as a weaver? Well, we did have to go to many doors to get those initial weavers, but what's so astonishing to me is that the impact that this social contract and what it really is, is a way to tangibly tie uh, good income to certain kinds of behaviors that will bode well for the families and the women over time. So it's really a way to shift the cultural norm. And we have been able to document that shift. And in a 10-year period, uh, we found it to be quite astonishing. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Connie Duckworth, the founder and CEO of Arzu Rugs, which is a nonprofit based in Afghanistan. Um, So I mentioned this criteria you had about kids having to go to school and women being able to go out both to uh, take classes to read, but also if they're pregnant to be able to get medical care. To U.S. ears, that sounds like whatever, big deal. You know, everybody would say yes to that. Um, Can you just talk about like how odd it was at that time to be asking for those sorts of things in Afghanistan. So the reality was uh, at that time and still to this day, some 90 plus percent of rural Afghan women are illiterate. Um, Most girls, even though schools opened for girls, many in particular rural villages, uh, it was not viewed as appropriate for girls to go to school. Hmm. Um, In terms of childbirth, Afghanistan had one of the highest maternal death rates in the world. And yet um, when a woman marries and is effectively sold into marriage at puberty for a bride price, she goes to live with her mother-in-law for life. Well, if the average Afghan woman has eight or nine children and that mother-in-law has had every one of her deliveries on her dirt floor in her small home... Uh, why would she consider releasing her daughter-in-law 
to go and deliver at some fancy clinic. And mm. I assure you, these are not fancy, fancy clinics. clinics. Yeah. So, you know, here you are starting a rug business. Why did you think it was important to loop into that rug business? I mean, I can understand saying like, we're going to pay a bonus if you do a really quality rug or if you do it in a certain amount of time or whatever it was. But to, to loop into that literacy and uh, issues of m- maternal mortality, why was that important in starting a rug business? I have a point of view, and it's been proven out time and again in Afghanistan, that true poverty alleviation is not uh, a function of addressing any one single problem. Rather, you must step back and look at this in a design thinking way as a human-centric activity. And in that, you really have to address an ecosystem of the major factors that all really play together to allow families or women or men to lift themselves from poverty. You can't do it with any one single attack. What ended up happening is that Connie Duckworth's rug company, Arzu, paid weavers almost 70 percent more than the average Afghan earned. Arzu also built preschools and homes and playgrounds. They offered classes, and little by little, change started to bubble up. A few years ago, students at Oxford University polled men who were the heads of households in which a woman worked for Arzu. The man of the household, the husband, the father, would say, I used to think that my wife could only do housework and have children. Now I think differently. I used to think my daughter, the best I could do was get her a marriage. Now I think differently. That's a remarkable shift in cultural mores in a 10-year period. I mean, a 10-year period is a nanosecond in terms of poverty alleviation. And the most wonderful aspect of this, in describing their wives, they would very openly say, my wife is more educated than me. She makes more money than me. She thinks like a man. That's a positive. That's a compliment. (laughs) And uh, for the daughters, again, these girls were illiterate and would have been sold for the bride price at puberty. I want my daughter to go on to higher education to become a teacher or a doctor. Now, we know that from a practical standpoint, not all girls are going to go to college and become a teacher or doctor. That doesn't happen in the United States. But the fact that these fathers would have that aspiration for their daughters is extraordinary. And the potential that a teacher or a doctor or a few will come out of these homes is definitely there. 20% of our families are now putting at least one child through university. Remember our starting point, all the families and all the kids were illiterate, and yet they now have a college-educated person. That change in the family will again bend the curve so that that person who may work in the city and may work in a professional-type job will further lift the family's economic situation. Connie Duckworth is founder and chief executive officer of Arzu Rugs, a nonprofit based in Afghanistan. Connie, thank you so much. Thank you. 
By the way, Duckworth still lives in Chicago. She runs the company by working with dozens of Afghan employees who are on the ground. And she says that sales now pay for about half of their expenses. The rest she makes up for with fundraising. When you ask Katie Egan what her favorite class is, she doesn't hesitate. My favorite uh, class I'm taking and my favorite class of all time is math. I think I'm just really good at that and I love it. Katie is in 10th grade. She lives in a small town in upstate New York, which is about halfway between Buffalo and Syracuse. But up until a few months ago, even though she was good at math, the class posed a serious problem for her. And to be fair, so did Spanish and lots of other classes, because getting homework done could be really tricky since Katie had no internet at home. I cannot afford it, along with all of the other bills I have to pay for my house, like electricity, plumbing, stuff like that. I talked to Katie by phone while she was waiting for her mom to pick her up from the library, and she said she often needs the internet to do her school assignments. I've had two projects in math this year where we had to create a slideshow on Google Slides to present to the class and teach them a unit that we had done before. And it was a big chunk of our grade for that uh, quarter of the year. So if I hadn't gone onto the internet, I wouldn't have been able to have a good grade in the class. Do you know if teachers ever are aware that when they say, like, oh, you have to do this thing using Google Slides or you have to look this figure up from history, that maybe everybody doesn't have the internet? Um, I think, like, teachers, they just assume that we all have internet access. They don't think that there is a small portion of us who aren't as lucky and have little to no money to afford that. Angela Seifer, the executive director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, says stories like Katie Egan's are not unusual. She hears something similar from families around the country. So they're looking at their bill and they're like, okay, you know, these are the bills that we have for the month. What can we cut? What don't we like? Internet is really important. But look, we just have to feed the kids. And so that gets not doesn't get prioritized. And then the kids come home from school and their homework all requires them to be online. Right. So then the parents are in this situation, and this has happened multiple times, right? We hear the story again and again. The parents are then in a situation where in order for their children to have a successful education, their kids need to have internet at home. Because what ends up happening is when they don't have internet at home, then they're finding public spaces. That is exactly what Katie Egan did. She started camping out at the library every afternoon. It all started, I believe, in... Eighth grade, I started going there. It really started because I had to do a project for a certain class, and so I needed to get on the Internet. So I asked my mom to go to the library, and she said I could, and it just went from there, and I'm, I still come to the library every single day. But libraries close. And while some kids in town are putting the finishing touches on their schoolwork at 10 at night, other kids aren't. Katie says there are lots of people where she lives in upstate New York who've got Internet access, and there are plenty who don't. Here's how she describes the divide in town. There's two sections to it, really. There's the side of the town that is very high-end, very posh and rich and just well-run. And then there's the other side of town that's really run down, and it looks like a disaster. It looks like a twister came through running through the town. In the fall of 2017, 
Katie Egan got a small box from the library. It was a hotspot that she could take home and it would give her access to the internet. It was free, the library had gotten a grant to cover it, and lots of other kids got the boxes too. Katie says she was surprised at how many people needed them. I asked her how this little box that gives her the internet has changed her life. It's changed completely for the better. It makes it easier to do work at home so I don't have to go to library all the time, even though I still do because I just love it there. But it makes it easier to do homework anywhere because I can just take the hotspot with me and take it anywhere with my Chromebook and have the internet. Angela Seifer, who runs the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, says that about 60 million Americans, close to one in five of us, are either without steady internet access or without any internet access at all. Which ends up, she argues, hurting the economy for all Americans. One barrier to access is that families can't afford the bill. Other times, there's just not that much coverage or not that much good coverage where they live. And it takes a toll on the jobs that people can get, on the medical advice that they can access, and on their success in school. If you go into a low-income neighborhood after the library closes, after schools close, you'll see kids hanging around outside the buildings. Go to a McDonald's on, on an evening, a uh, day before school, and you'll see kids doing their homework. And they're using the Wi-Fi network of McDonald's. They're using the Wi-Fi, okay. right? They're using free Wi-Fi wherever they can get it. Uh, I have um, two teenage t- children, and I can tell you they don't do homework when they're supposed to do homework. Right. So if you're like, <laughs> well, children, let's just all make sure we do our homework before 7 p.m. when the library closes. That's just not the reality of mm-hmm. how kids operate, mm-hmm. right? They wait till the last minute, and then here it is, 9 o'clock at night, and they don't have their homework done, and you don't have internet at home. Right. So what ends up happening? The kid doesn't do his homework. It's very heartbreaking. And I'm guessing there's a lot of places where parents do not want to actually let kids out at 9 or 10 at night, where it's dangerous enough. They're worried about what's going to happen. And, like, homework is important, but physical safety is more important. And so they're not going to—they don't want them hanging around McDonald's. Yes, there's a story we heard um, that was told to me of um, a student in high school who was in AP classes, and he lived in the housing authority, and the best place for him to get internet was the Walmart. And his mom said, actually, the Walmart is not a safe place. Stuff goes on in the parking lot that she is not comfortable with. And so she did not want him going there to do his homework. And he would get frustrated with her because he needed to go do his homework, but she wanted him to be safe. When you go around and talk to people, what do, like, ordinary people who are advocating for more Internet access in their area, what do they feel like they're missing? They feel like they're wasting their time. Because if it takes them 30 minutes to do the online banking, and Uh it should have only taken them five minutes to do their online banking, then that's 25 minutes they just lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they have to go in town, uh, you know, or drive two hours to get uh, to a hospital where they could have done um, a video uh, interview with a doctor from their their rural home rather than driving into a a larger city that's hours away. Again, they just lost those hours driving in the car to get there and the gas money and the work time lost. So there's a lot of loss associated with not having the amount of broadband in your home that you really need to be participating successfully today. Right. Have you heard people say that you that they feel like um, it hurts their job prospects, that either they don't get practice or they I, like can't even go on recruiting sites, I would guess? Yeah. No, let me tell you a very sad story. Uh, there's a program in Mississippi where uh, 
individuals who wanted to change careers or wanted a better job were taught how to use the computer and how to do telework, right, how to work from home. Mm -hmm. And so someone got a, um, a job offer from uh, a company where she would be doing customer service from her home. It was going to be a huge step for her and her family. And then the company required her to do a speed test, and the job offer was off the table. Mm -hmm. Her home broadband was not fast enough for her to have this telework job. So like her whole family situation would have changed with this new job. And she was so close. Right, right. But she did not have fast enough internet at home. And so the opportunities of other positions were thin. There wasn't a lot of choice out there for her on where she could find a job. And she had the training. She was ready. And then it was gone. Right. And that it sounds like the faster um, speed was just not available. Like it wasn't an option she could choose, right? No, she had. In fact, it was AT&T service and it was less than three meg. And they said they couldn't, AT&T couldn't fix okay. that unless she, you know, was able to pay for a very high connection being added, which obviously she's not in right. a position to do. Can you give me a sense of where in the country you see uh, a lot of people, like where are the hot spots that essentially people don't have internet access? Are there cities, are there states where a lot of people are concentrated that don't have internet access? Yes. Each year we look at publicly available data and we come up with a list of the worst connected cities in the U.S. And folks really don't like to be on this list, <laughs> but, it, but it does draw attention to it. It is more common for us to hear about rural areas that don't have access, which is a very serious problem, um, and it's expensive to solve. But we as the country have to address that if we want everyone to be online, which we do because that benefits all of us to have everybody else online. There's a misconception that urban areas are just taken care of, that there is more competition in those places. So if we take Cleveland as an example, what has happened in the whole state of Ohio was – about 11 years ago, there was a state law passed that allowed cable providers to have cable franchise agreements throughout the whole state rather than negotiating with individual municipalities. And this seems at the surface like a good idea because it would make it easier, right, less red tape for them to set up their networks. But in reality, what happened is that the the best phrase that we've come up with is digital redlining. Hmm. So they chose the areas that were more profitable, And this happened in Cleveland, Detroit, Toledo. So these are places in Detroit, Michigan. They had the same same law passed there. Uh, These are places where there is access to broadband, but there's not competition because certain AT&T in particular decided not to invest in poorer neighborhoods in those cities. So you can get spectrum charter uh, broadband service, really fast fees, but it's going to cost you about $65 a month. Hmm. You can get AT&T and it would be a bit less. It would be more like 35 to 40, but the speed that you get is going to vary. It might not even be three meg because they just didn't invest in your neighborhood. So I'm guessing that means it's very, very slow to download things or to watch videos or whatever. It's about impossible. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Angela Seifert. She's the executive director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. And we're talking about the digital divide in America. Um, give me a sense of how we relate to other countries. Because when we talk about 60 million-ish people not having good or reliable internet, that's about one in five Americans, which is 
strikes me as a lot because, you know, people think, oh, the Internet is ubiquitous. Not if one in five people can get on it um, in a regular way. How do we compare to, like, France, to Canada, to Australia, to England? Like, how do we compare to other places? Right. So we're, we're mid-range. Okay. Right. But as a country that is used to being at the top in technology and innovation, is mid-range really okay? Like, are we all ex- are we okay with being mid-range? Uh, there are some that are doing way better than us, and there are some that are not doing as well as us. Uh, so we need to decide if if we are going to continue to be at the top of the game in terms of technology and really lead the world, we need to make sure everyone is participating. Because we've already seen plenty of examples of how our technology has failed because we weren't involving people of color, for example, mm-hmm. um, because then it's less usable to folks of color because there weren't people of color creating it. Right, right. Now, here's my question. I feel like, and I may just be imagining this, but that about 50 or 60 percent of the State of the Union addresses I've heard over the last 20 years talked about bringing connectivity to people in America who do not have it, like giving them access to the Internet, going out into rural areas and bringing broadband This seems like a bipartisan issue because we've talked about inner cities, those tend to vote Democratic, rural areas, those tend to vote Republican. So it seems like there's something here for everybody. Why have we not been better um, in addressing this issue? We've gone at it in a very piecemeal kind of way. So some administrations and programs have addressed anchor institutions, for example, libraries and schools, and and those are really essential. Um, others have gone at rural populations, but it was limited to only certain internet service providers were eligible for the funds to roll that out. Uh, there was stimulus money that was used also, but that was only for middle mile not to getting to people's homes. So, th- so there's been these little pieces here and there. But we haven't had a national plan where we said this is really important and we're going to really do this. What we've allowed to have happen in the country is that those who have a financial interest in it have been controlling the conversation. And that has got to stop. Mm -hmm. Now, the companies that have been reluctant to want to get into areas that maybe – you know, poor areas of cities or rural areas. Um, Do you think that that's, there's a legitimate argument there that they're saying like, look, this is a rural town. It's It's really hard for us to get out there and to lay these wires and everything. And it's just like the numbers don't add up for us. We can't make money. We'll lose money doing that. Absolutely. And that's exactly what they should say. But that's not what they say. They say, we're getting there. We're getting there. So there shouldn't be any other um, municipal or community-funded solutions because we're going to get there eventually. Really? So you see this as like a dragging of the feet situation? Oh, it's worse than a dragging of the feet. They have sued municipalities. They have um, gone in and gotten state laws changed because they don't want competition. Now, why is that? I mean, if a company does not want to cover, you know— Grinnell, Iowa, then why don't they let somebody else do it? They don't want to do it. Who cares? Because they might want to tomorrow. They did, they, they're just protecting their turf just in case they want to move in. That's exactly right. Okay. And that may work for their bottom line. Like that might be a really good argument inside a boardroom, but it's a really terrible argument when you're at a town hall meeting. 
And who do you see as winning those fights? The the companies that want to protect their turf, even if they don't want to give anybody Internet necessarily, or the cities and states that do? I think the tide is turning, okay. actually. So it wasn't that long ago when they the companies were very much winning. But there is such frustration at the local level, and hmm. folks are really calling their elected officials and having real conversations. The other thing that's changing is education about broadband. Regular folks have educated themselves, and then they go to their elected officials, and they discuss it with them. And that is an incredible change that has occurred over the last few years. Hmm. What is your balance of, like— encouraged versus discouraged in in what you do and the kind of developments that you see on a daily basis? I fluctuate wildly. (laughs) (laughs) There are days when I am super frustrated when I'm hearing these incredibly sad stories of folks who could have had jobs, Mm. uh, of kids who have to go into unsafe places to do their homework. Uh, But then there are we, for example, we just ended our national uh, conference, which we held um, Coincidentally, in Cleveland, Ohio, and we had uh, over 300 attendees talking about all the creative solutions that they're coming up with to increase connectivity in their communities. And that is really, it's uplifting beyond belief. Angela Seifer is executive director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Angela, thank you so much for your time. Kara, thanks for having me. Internet speeds vary around the country, and you might sometimes feel like your internet is a little bit slower than it should be. We're going to have a link to a quick and easy internet speed test that you can do at home that's on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show, senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.